Christ is risen. Amen. There is much to be celebrated about Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. But before I begin, I just want to pray. If if you would just join with me in prayer. Let's start. Father in heaven, we come before you anxious to hear what your word has to say. And we pray, Lord, that by your word, you would encourage that believer. You would cause someone who is considering the claims of Christ to think, to consider, to ponder his lordship, his mastery, his uniqueness. He is God in the flesh who has come to die for the sins of man and to be raised again to prove who he was. We thank you for this time. We ask that you would help us, help me to preach. We know that your word says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we readily confess that. So this morning, help our friends here to hear. Hear your word. Help me to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me to John chapter 20? John chapter 20. We're going to camp on a portion of Scripture that's not normally camped on for the resurrection. And we're only going to go from verses 1 to 10. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Now, before we start, oftentimes about this year, there's all, all kinds of articles in magazines about the resurrection of Christ. Usually there are articles that state that it was the Romans who stole his body or they concoct some other different plan or some other different scheme of how Christ's body was no longer in the tomb. The resurrection, Jesus dying and being raised up to life again, is typically mocked by the world. They say it didn't happen. They say Jesus wasn't really dead. They say that it was a hoax concocted by church leaders to lay sway over their congregants. In popular culture, the resurrection of Christ is simply trivialized in numerous movies with other comic book heroes. Captain America, presumably dead, comes back to life 60 years later. Neo from the Matrix returns. Society is left asking, what is so unique about the resurrection of Christ? Others ask, what difference does it make? Aren't the teaching of Jesus enough? Who cares whether or not it really happened? Aren't the morals to follow a good life enough? Most other religions do not rely on historical events as much as Christianity. From its inception, Christianity has been based and rooted in historical facts. The life and death of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the resurrection is the very bedrock of the Christian faith. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Does believing the resurrection of Christ really matter at all? That's the question. Does it really matter at all? John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other 
disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would embrace, so that you would believe the resurrection of Christ proving he is the son of God. That is, that is John's thesis. Notice he says here in John's clear thesis in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then he says in verse 31, the very thesis of why John was written, the gospel of John was written. The apostle put these things in there for this reason. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In this text that we're looking at in verses 1 through 10, there are three compelling reasons God gives so that you would believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, proving he is the Son of God. There are three compelling reasons. Uh, first, the first reason, verses 1 to 3, is believe the eyewitness testimonies. John is recording here in Scripture for you. He says, believe the eyewitness testimony. Notice here, the first person to see that the tomb was empty, the very first person is Mary Magdalene. She comes in uh, before dawn breaks, when it's still dark, and uh, later on in another gospel, she comes later on with the other women. The other women come and they come after daybreak. But at this time, Mary, this is the woman's testimony, Mary Magdalene comes and she's the first eyewitness testimony. Now, why is this significant? This is significant because um, in, in, uh, to test historicity, a lot of historians they, call, they use this test called the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. And we're going to see that in the New Testament, it isn't, all, uh, it isn't a walk in the park. It isn't, the story isn't meshed together cleanly and nicely. In fact, it records the very weaknesses uh, of men. But here, the criterion of embarrassment here, which tests the historicity, of the text is simply that Mary was a woman. Now, follow with me, okay? The, the criterion of embarrassment uh, is the idea that if you were to make a fraudulent claim, 
you would not include embarrassing details that detract from the story. If you're trying to make someone believe in your story, you don't add details that are embarrassing or may weaken the believability of your story. If embarrassing elements are included, it points to its veracity or its historical fact. In other words, if you're trying to concoct a story, you don't put weaknesses in the story. Now, the reason why this would be a weakness in the story, and we don't see it readily available here, is in Jewish society at that time, women were not, uh, they were not even taken as witnesses in the legal court. In fact, at that time, um, Josephus, the first century historian, he said, let not the testimony of a woman be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. I'm not saying this is right or this is wrong. I'm just saying this is what Jewish society was. They didn't even accept a woman's testimony. Even in, um, in the Mishnah, the Jewish legal text written in 220, stated the same. And you know this is even true even in your life. Okay? When you go to a family reunion, what are the stories that they talk about about you? They are the true embarrassing stories of your life. And you know what? I can't defend it. Whenever I'm in a family story, they always have like two or three stories about me when I'm at a family reunion. And they're true. And I can't defend it, right? I can't defend it. It's totally embarrassing. But the fact that she was a woman at that time, sadly, women were not given, they were given a low status and could not even be legal witnesses. So as you look at the text, You've got to ask yourself, why would they even include a woman's testimony in there if she can't even be included as a legal witness? It's because it points to the veracity, the truthfulness of the text. Secondly, secondly, you have the coward's testimony. The coward's testimony. Notice who runs there. He says there, so she ran and came to Simon Peter. This is another example of the criterion of embarrassment. Now, Peter, we know later in, in uh, the book of Acts, Peter, he became a bold preacher and one of the main leaders of the early church during Christ's suffering. But we know that before that, he was a coward. He denied Christ. When they came to arrest Jesus, if you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter bravely grabs a sword, tries to kill one of them, and he misses, and the guy dodges, and he cuts off his ear. And, and uh, he, says, he says, I'm not going to let you take away Christ. But what happens is Jesus says, let them. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And he allows, them to, he allows himself to be arrested. Now, when Jesus was arrested, Peter sneaks in to see. And he catches a glimpse of Jesus being beaten. He sees the beating that Jesus is receiving. Not in the text, it's in another text. But he sees the beating Jesus received and his impending death. And now Peter is scared because he sees the reality of the text. And he sees the reality of what's going on. And now a slave girl recognizes Peter and his, and his accent. 
and ask if he was with Jesus. Now, this was once brave man who cut off the ear of another person, now he denies Christ three times. A cock crows, and Peter looks across, and he sees Jesus' eyes, and they meet. And the text says, and Peter wept bitterly. And the word there means there was a groaning agony of failure. He just went out. So now we have two criterions of embarrassment, don't we? We have the testimony of Mary, who would not even be accepted in court. We have the cowardice of Peter, who was supposed to be a leader of the church. Look at this. We have also the skeptic's testimony. The skeptic's testimony. I'm just going to skip on. Notice, this is supposed to be a leader of the church. This is Christ's greatest achievement. He is resurrection from the dead, and the leaders don't believe. Notice what does he say here in verse 24. We're just skipping. Everyone is talking about Christ being raised from the dead in verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, well, I believe as well. No, he didn't say that. Notice what he says. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, verse 26, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with him and Jesus said, Reach here, put your finger into my hands. Reach here, your hand, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Again, yet another failure of man to see what Christ has done. Then you have the old man's testimony. The old man's testimony. And that is John. I call him the old man because he is, he is the only one who dies of natural causes later on. He's the only one who is ex exiled to the island of Patmos. In the island of Patmos, he writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. But John says this. Uh, go with me to 1 John. You'll see his eyewitness handling of the resurrection body of Jesus in the epistle, 1 John. The epistle of 1 John, right after 1 and 2 Peter. This is how the old man who is exiled to Patmos, okay, he's imprisoned there for his faith. He writes this letter, and now he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. Now, what John is saying is, I'm telling you the truth. As I wrote the book of John, the gospel of John, I am recounting this so that you would believe. And in the book of 1 John, he says, not only did I write the text, not only did I spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ, but also I felt him. I touched him. I beheld him like Thomas. 
I had breakfast with the resurrected Christ. When Jesus was arrested, all the disciples, including John, fled. If you wanted to make a fraudulent, fanciful story, you would not have made it known that your leaders of an early movement were cowards. You would want to make them unflinching, fearless leaders from the get-go, but this was not the case. After the resurrection, all the disciples boldly gave their lives for Christ and his gospel afterwards. There was something that happened. There was something that happened that changed cowardly men into brave men. There was something that happened that changed men who dispersed because Christ was arrested into men who will stand, who will fight, who will preach to the very people who killed Christ. Something happened. See, tradition tells us that James was put to death by sword. That Peter was crucified upside down. That Andrew was crucified on an olive tree. That Thomas was stabbed with spears and burned alive. That Matthew was most likely beheaded. And we know Paul was beheaded. And John was exiled to the island of Patmos. What accounts for this? What changes cowardly men to preach the gospel? You would not do it for a lie. You would not do it for a concocted idea. You would, not, would you? Would you? Would you give your life for, for something you knew to be a lie? And yet each of them died for the faith. Um. Someone asked, uh, there was a, was a professor of law of Harvard. His name was Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the established, he established the, the, the law department in Harvard in the mid-1800s. He was one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School and was considered as the foremost expert of evidence in his day. He was an agnostic, but uh, some say he was an atheist at the time. And he believed the resurrection of Christ to be a fairy tale, a lie. Simon Greenleaf was an expert on evidence. One of his students challenged him to study the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And Green, Greenleaf desired to prove the resurrection of Christ as false. But after his thorough study of the biblical record and weighing the evidence, Simon Greenleaf became a believer. stated that the resurrection of Christ was a historical fact. One of the most powerful evidences that Greenleaf stood upon was the changed life of the disciples. I normally don't quote this long in a sermon, but if you have the notes, you notice there is a very long quote. And I want to read this because uh, you only quote, here's, a, here's, a, here's some uh, two cents. You only quote when you can't say it any better. I can't say it any better than this professor of law as he studied it. He says it great. Read with me. I'm going to just read this quote. This is, this is the powerful testimony of changed lives because of what? Because of the resurrected body of Christ, because he resurrected from the dead. Lives lived 
He's talking about the disciples. Under the greatest discouragements in the face of the most appalling terrors, their master, having recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of public tribunal. He's just saying that Christ himself died. Their leader has been killed. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of every country were against the teaching of his disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecution, stripes, imprisonment, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet their faith, this faith, they zealously did propagate, and all these miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing, as one after another to a miserable death. The survivors also prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution. Did you hear what he said? He said, you see your friends dying because of the faith. What does that do? If it's a lie, you're going to back up and say, oh, I didn't believe that after all. No, that wasn't me after all. No, 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 that wasn't me, right? But it was true, and that's why what it says, what he's saying is, as he started to see his friends get killed for the faith, they got even stronger in their preaching, even more vibrant, more vigorous in their preaching. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy patience, and unclenching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great faiths and truths which they asserted, and these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they have narrated, but not Jesus actually rose from the dead and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. I'm reading on. If it were morally possible for them to have been deceived in this manner, every human motive operated to lead them to discover and avow their error. He's saying that he would have discovered a way. If, it's, if there's any, any way that they could have made sure, they would have made sure. Because everything is on the line. You have to understand. The disciples are putting everything on the line to have persisted in so gross a falsehood after it was known to them was not only to encounter for life all the evils which man could inflict from without, but to endure all the pangs of inward and conscious guilt with no hope of future peace, no testimony of a good conscience, no expectation of honor or esteem among men, no hope of happiness in this life or in the world to come. Now, though in a single instance a good man may fall when under strong temptations, yet he is not found persisting for years in deliberated falsehood, asserted with the most solemn appeals to God, without the slightest temptation or motive, and against all the opposing interests which reign in the human breast, if on the contrary they are supposed to have been bad men, it is incredible that such men would have chosen this form of imposture. Enjoining as it does unfeigned repentance, utter forsaking and abhorrence of all falsehood. What he's saying is, if they were evil men, if they were deceptive men, they would not have gone that far to sacrifice 
themselves. Let me read the end. He says, from these absurdities, it would be absurd to give your life for this. From these absurdities, there is no escape. But in the perfect conviction and admission that they were good men, testifying to that which they have carefully observed and considered and well knew to be true. God gave us witnesses whose life changed because of the resurrection of Christ. You also have the multitude's testimony. I'm just going to read it as we move on. In 1 Corinthians 15, as Brother Nilo read, 500 brethren saw him. And Paul says, most of them remain until now. In other words, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, why don't you go there with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I got to read this text to you. This is not fairy tale. This is not myth. This is not a placebo. This is not a fog, a heroine for the masses, as Freud would say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, Paul says, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at a time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And now, this is the multitude's testimony. 500 people saying the same thing. Boy, it's hard to even get my kids to say the same thing. 500 people testifying to seeing the risen Christ. 500 people agreeing, yes, this is what we saw. Now, notice what he says in the phrase. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. The, verse, the phrase there, some have fallen asleep, means that they have died. But he says most of them remain until now. What he's saying is this. There are some in our church, they're still alive. Go check them out. What's amazing with, with, with this text is he's saying, they saw Christ. Go check the story. They're still alive. See, 1 Corinthians was written around 54 A.D. Jesus was killed around 3 A.D. So that's only about 50 years. You've got to understand the, the significance of this, okay? 50 years. 50 years, okay? 50 years ago. That's like saying, that's like doubting if Malcolm X even existed. Well, I don't, I don't think he was assassinated. No, he wasn't. He didn't even exist. You'd be a fool. Why? Because I could talk to people who were there. You could check. Of course he existed. There's articles. There's magazines. That would be like saying uh, Muhammad Ali did not beat Sonny Liston. That is foolish. You could check. That would be like the Rolling Stones didn't go on tour in 1965. Of course you could know. Why? Just like Paul says, it was so close to when it actually happened that you can go check. Go check. Now, what are the compelling reasons that Christ was resurrected? First, believe the eyewitnesses' testimonies. And second, second, believe the forensic evidence. 
believe the forensic evidence. Uh, go back with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 in verses 4 to 8. Um, I just want to give you some extra biblical. This is out of the text, okay? This is external evidence. This is external forensic evidence before we even get into the text here, okay? The way, another way that texts are tested for their historicity is the proximity of its earliest copies, okay? If the copies are closer to the original copies, that is called the autographs, okay? We believe that the autographs, the original copies of the scriptures are inspired by God, okay? And that there were many copies made after that. If those copies were made really close to the original, then the accuracy is much better. You following? Okay. That's, that's a test of its historicity. And another test is, are how many manuscript copies are there that are close to the original? So the test of historicity and all works of antiquity has been this. How close are those copies made? And how many do we have that we could compare? And the reason why it matters is because if you can compare the text, then you, you can see where there were errors. You can see if it was really accurate or not. Let me give you some um, examples of other works of antiquity. We totally believe in school that Aristotle uh, existed. That was at 384 to 322 BC. But notice his earliest copy of any uh, writings of Aristotle that we have is in 1100 AD. That is a difference of 1400 years. You know how many copies we have of Aristotle? We have five. And yet we believe what Aristotle says. Julius Caesar, he wrote uh, between 100 to 44 B.C. His earliest copy of his writings that we could find is 900 A.D. That's a difference of about 1,000 years. You know how many number of copies we have? We have 10. We have 10. Homer, oh, well, excuse me, Homer, he, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, we have that at 900 B.C. We know he existed he lived at that time. The earliest copy we have is 400 B.C., which is 500 years. We have 643 manuscripts. That's better. Plato, 427 to 347, 900 A.D., that's 1,200 years. Plato, we only have seven copies of his work. Now, we put that in comparison to the New Testament. Okay? The New Testament was written between 50 to 100 A.D., we could tell simply by a lot of the language markers and a lot of the, um, of the writings, it was really early when these books were written, right after Christ died. Okay? The earliest copy that we can find is at least 200 A.D. Okay? That means that many of the copies range between just 100 to maybe 400 years or 500 years okay? from the original text. You know how many copies we have? We have 5,300 Greek manuscripts. We have 10,000 Latin Vulgates. We have 9,300, totaling 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay. That's not even to mention that every time the Bible is consulted in archaeology, 
It's always right. The existence of the Hittites, Genesis 11, and the Table of Nations, the description of other cultures such as the Medo-Persians and Esther. All of this. All of this. But friends, if you've come here and you don't believe in the Bible's account, it's not because of a lack of evidence. Why don't I believe? You've got to ask that question. Now we go to the text. Go to the text. Because I want to look at the internal evidence, which is much stronger, which weighs heavier, which means more. I, want, I gave that information to you so that you know that we can answer all these facts. We can answer all these questions that people have. We could answer the skeptics' questions, is there evidence? What's the written evidence? Yeah, we could answer it. But the real root of the problem, why someone doesn't want to believe the resurrection, is not because of the lack of evidence. You understand? It's because the heart of man doesn't want to say there's a risen Christ. Because if they say there's a risen Christ, then there is a God that I have to deal with. Unless I bow and believe in Christ, that he is my savior, and I could only be saved by trusting in him, I will not be saved. So it's easier to discount. Do you see? It's easier to discount the resurrection. I could say other things, such as when the Roman soldiers penetrated Jesus' heart with a spear, the text says blood and water came out. We know that that's consistent with the rupturing of the pericardial sac. And when you poke the heart, water and blood, it looks like water comes out. But notice in the text here, I want to look at just this text. I think this is fantastic. Okay? So now we looked at the um, witnesses, but look at verse 4. The two were running and the other disciple ran ahead faster. The other disciple, this is John, he's talking about himself. He calls himself the other disciple and he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and he did not go in. I think John was terrified. He saw the wrappings, and he stood back. I, I can't go in, right? Peter, what does it happen? So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings. Watch this, okay? And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Notice, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Usually, if you read this text, you just keep going. Uh, that, I, don't know what that, I don't know what that means. I'm going to just keep going, right? If the disciples stole the body, they wouldn't have unwrapped Christ. It would have been unpleasant, right? If the grave robbers stole the body, they wouldn't have rewrapped the bandages to make it look nice, right? But you've got to notice what the manner and the way the text reads, even in the original language, he says, the face cloth, follow me, okay? The face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And what John is saying is this, okay? He's saying when someone is buried, you wrap the body, okay, in these linen wrappings, 
and then they wrap the head. And clearly, when you see the body, you can see the shape because the, the, the wrappings are around it. Okay? What John is saying is, there was no body, but the wrappings were still rolled. There was no body, but the head, the shape of the head was still in the tomb. And when John saw it, he was terrified. When John saw it, it was supernatural. How could someone get out of the bandages with the wrapping still there? And that is the glorious, glorious wonder of the resurrection. Notice he says here, no one even shared it with John. No one even preached to John. Notice what happens. So Simon Peter also came along, entered the tomb, saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled in a place by itself. So the other disciple, John's talking about himself, who had first come to the tomb, entered, saw, and what does it say? Believe. He believed. This is interesting, okay? What was it that John saw? What was it that John made John believe? Bandages. God used bandages. So he goes in. He says, imagine what there is no way anyone can, can get out of there. So what happened? Christ himself went through the bandages in his glorified state. This is not the first example. Notice he says here in John chapter 20. Notice verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, why was the door shut? Because the disciples were scared of getting killed. They were scared of dying. They didn't want to get killed. They shut the doors. They wanted to hide. Why? For fear of the Jews. What happened? Jesus came and stood in their midst. What? The doors were locked. What happened? Jesus just comes right through. Hey, guys. How are you? And they're freaked out. Right? Notice. Verse 26, eight days his disciples were again inside. Thomas with them. Jesus came. The doors were shut. And he stood in their midst. And he comes in and he says, peace be with you. If you know Christ, your glorious Savior, death could not hold him. The stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out. Did you know that? The stone was rolled away so the disciples could see the tomb is empty. That your faith now is not based on someone's story, on someone's placebo for life so that you could get through the hard times. Your story, your gospel, your Christ is based in historicity and in fact because of the witnesses, because of the forensic evidence, and lastly, the strongest is because of the authoritative because God said it. Because God said it. The prophecies, I could name hundreds of them. I'll just say Isaiah 53. 
He was hated. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was scourged. He was oppressed. He was buried by a rich man, by a guilt offering. I could say Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will thy. This is amazing. In Psalm 16. Neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. In the Psalms, Jesus was prophesied to not suffer decay. Why? Because he was resurrected. He was resurrected. Jesus himself told the disciples in Matthew 16. I'll just read that. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid it. Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter himself, Jesus told them, I was going to suffer. And the fulfillment we know is the resurrection of Christ. But if we only knew these things as simple facts and didn't understand what they mean, we would be lost. Go with me to back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what Nilo read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul tells us the significance of why it matters. Okay. Why does it matter? He says, I delivered to you what was of first most importance and he says he was buried, verse 4, he was raised on the third day, right? But now he says in verse 12, Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do you among you say there is no resurrection now? There are people who didn't believe in the resurrection, just like today. They don't believe it. In verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching in his vain and your faith is also in vain. What is he saying is this, okay? If there is no resurrection, then all that Jesus said was a lie. If there was no resurrection, then all that he said about himself being the son of God, all that he said about himself having power, being one with the father, all that he said about himself saying that, if you trust only in me, you will, you will be saved. All that he said was a lie. But what the resurrection does, it proves not only his power, but his words. It proves who he is. And then he says here, if there is no, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Some people will say, well, if you follow Christ, you don't have to believe all those things. You don't have to be fanatical about those things. What the Bible says is this. Notice he says here. If we have hoped in Christ, verse 19, in this life, we are all, all men most to be pitied. He says, no, you've wasted your life. You've wasted your life if the resurrection is not true. In fact, you should have gone with, the, with your friends and trying to collect the most toys before you die. You should have done that. You should have lived like an animal and you should have lived in debauchery and you should have lived in drunkenness and in orgies. Go ahead. He said, that's what he's saying. Because we gave that up. If you know Christ, you give it up. You give it up for him. Why? Because there is a Savior who was resurrected. He died for my sins and he proved he was Christ. 
And now because he proved he is Christ, I am going to be with him. How do I know? He did it first. He conquered death first. He is in verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits from who are asleep. This is this this fact, this historical fact has every bearing on your walk as a Christian. Because he is raised again, I know that I'm forgiven. Amen. Amen. Let me look at let me read this text to you in John 20. Back to John 20. Thomas didn't believe, right? He didn't believe. He didn't believe the testimonies. He didn't believe the forensic evidence. He didn't believe the authoritative Bible. At the, in the beginning, he didn't. Right? Notice he says here, verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them. He says, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. You know those kind? I don't believe it until I see it. That's what he's saying. Right? That's what Thomas is saying. I don't believe it until I see it. After eight days, 20, uh, verse 26, his disciples were with him again. Jesus stood in their midst. Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here with your hand. Put it into my side. And he says, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, you should have believed me. But he did say this. Listen to these words. My friends here. Listen to these words, okay? He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Here's the question, okay? Here's the question that I leave. Okay? Are you one of those who have not seen Christ, but has seen him in his word, has seen what he's done in your life? has seen the truth of Scripture, and do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah that died for the sins of man? Do you believe that he is the way to salvation? This is the only way you'll be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he has proven it by conquering death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even above all those outside evidences, your word rings clear. You have come, you have sent your son. He died on the cross. He was raised again and he is coming to bring his people home. Our hope is not based on fairy tale or myth it is based on truth that can be searched out but even beyond that we know we know because you've done a work by your spirit in our hearts and the spirit testifies with us that this is true oh lord i pray i pray that maybe if there are folks here who've been just thinking about it and who've had questions i pray that those questions have been answered and I pray, Father, that you would work on those that all of us here may come to know the Savior 
and come to believe in the power of his resurrection and to live like that. Thank you for this day. May we have a great day together as we partake of a meal. We praise you and we thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to sing with full hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.